Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Cognitive Dissidents. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm the Director of Geopolitical Analysis at Cognitive Investments. Joining me as usual for our weekly chat on markets and geopolitics is Rob Larity, our Chief Investment Officer. Uh, not much ado for me. Just want to say thank you so much for those of you that have signed up for the podcast. If you could do me one huge favor, please leave a review or a rating of this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, if you are a Perch Pod listener who has signed up for Cognitive Dissidents, great. Thank you so much. We need you to rate and review this one too. If you've already done the Perch Pod, I actually need you to do this one as well. Um, also, please, if you like the podcast, all you have to do is share it with your friends. That's the best thing that you could do for us to get the word out. So thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you being here. We hope you're enjoying these episodes. Um, you can write to me at jacob at cognitive.investments if you have any um, questions, comments, concerns about the podcast at all, or want to talk about anything in general. So no more talking from me. Cheers. We'll see you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All right, Rob. Um, I feel like every time we get together, I say it's a crazy week um, and it's just crazy week after crazy week. So I probably just need to downgrade what I think is crazy. Um, I but think that's the new normal week. I guess so. Um, so we had two sort of big ticket things we wanted to talk about this week that intersect both markets and geopolitics in nice ways. And, and we'll see where we go from here. The first is um, what's going on in energy markets right now. Um, We've talked about energy for the past couple of weeks. Do you want to just remind um, kind of listeners what, what our position has been on energy for the past couple of weeks going into what we're about to talk about? Yeah, well, a few weeks ago, it's, it's already hard to remember, but the consensus was that energy prices can only go one direction and energy stocks were the only game in town and um, very well loved by investors. And, you know, at that time we were expressing some skepticism around that. And I, I think we said that that trade was much overloved and it was vulnerable to a turnaround. And that's what hap what has happened in the interim. So we're here and, you know, energy stocks in the US are down, I think 15% in two or three weeks, which is a real big drop. Oil prices have gone, uh, the West Texas crude oil price has gone from 122 to 105. Um, and we've had some interesting new developments in energy markets since then. So we can talk through that and sort of what, what is likely to happen from here on out. Yeah. And I think it's a really great place to, to talk to because it's weird sort of from where I sit geopolitically, I'm seeing things a little bit differently. Um, you know, for me, I see still that there's really not enough supply out there to meet demand. I see European countries that are moving towards coal. I see, um, you know, the Libyans are, are shifting production back and forth and you've got different Europeans. That's where we're going to get our LNG, things like that. Um, which I, I think there's something about timing here too, which is, you know, maybe in, in the time horizon, the, the sort of medium to long term maybe still looks inflationary for energy prices, but it seems that something else is going on here in the short term, like you said. 
Yeah, the thing about energy that's always so interesting and so always so hard to wrap your hands around is it's so dependent on the second derivative of change. So today, well, just looking at the demand side, two anecdotes that are uh, popping out for us are, I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks ago or a month ago, I mentioned um, one of our contacts in our network runs a network of Airbnbs in a, you know, an Eastern city, very high-end Airbnbs. And I just received an email from him 30 minutes ago saying that he's been slashing pricing on his Airbnbs. Remember, this is the same contact who said he thought his business would be up 75% mm-hmm. versus 2019. Uh, so that's a big change. And you can see that there's um, other data coming out on hotel demand and travel demand where suddenly this sort of demand response to higher gasoline prices it appears to be flowing through. And, you know, on the Airbnb side, it's more than just gas. It's, there's a lot of factors in there, including just sentiment, desire to travel, um, how higher-end consumers are feeling because Airbnb customers in urban areas are wealthier people on average. So you're starting to see some of the wealth effect probably flow through as people's portfolios get whacked. Um, so that is happening very quickly and very recently, and that's moving in the wrong direction for energy demand. Um, the other anecdote that we're hearing is, you know, we do a lot of field research, as we've mentioned uh, elsewhere. And what that means is we go around and visit stuff, go to stores, visit factories, talk to people in different businesses and industries that we're interested in. And right now, one of uh, our colleagues is uh, visiting Home Depots and has been told that there's uh, been a real marked change in sentiment and demand among customers. Um, It's been crickets, essentially. And usually this time of year, it's not crickets. Memorial Day and the period around that as people are gearing up for summer is seasonally a pretty good period for big ticket home items and and demand for those sorts of goods. And that's not showing up um, to nearly the extent that people seem to have expected. So those are two things that are kind of real time indicators. So when you're thinking about, you know, supply and, and what's happening in Libya and, you know, a million barrels coming offline you know, it's a it's a race against time because demand and supply are always changing so rapidly at the margin. And that's what makes energy tricky and, and identifying these risk reward setups like we've talked about. Yeah, it, it almost I mean, I've been so confused why the white this particular White House is so obsessed with gasoline prices, mostly just because I've never really thought that the U.S. president could control gasoline prices that much. But when you look at like the Biden administration saying they're going to get rid of gasoline taxes and they're going to make nice with the Saudis, which they've been resisting doing for a long time and all these sorts of things they're trying to do to get energy prices down. When ironically, it seems like, I mean, tell me if I'm interpreting this right. It sort of sounds like people are pricing in the recession and the Fed raising interest rates the way that the, the way that they did, which we talked about last week, is creating all this demand destruction 
And it's sort of hiding the fact that there isn't enough supply out there right now, even for this demand. It's just we're we're sort of resetting our expectations from the summer of travel to uh, the summer of rising interest rates and recession. So it doesn't matter that there's that there's not enough supply. It's just we, there's not as much demand as we thought there was going to be before. Is that is that the right way to interpret what you're saying? I think it is. And you can see that's what the bond market is saying. So you know, you're going to talk about European energy prices and European energy developments from a geopolitical standpoint in a, in a moment, I'm sure, because there's some very interesting stuff going on there. But if you look at the 10-year German Bund yield, two days ago, it was 1.65%. This morning, it's 1.45%. So mm. bond yields in Europe have compressed very quickly um, and very sharply. That's a major sign of, you know, of economic rollover. Uh, and it's the same in the U.S. because you're seeing interest rates do the same thing. And it's sort of, um, I think, an interesting parallel to look at for the current environment is when Paul Volcker was um, made the Fed chairman in summer of 1979. And if you look at the way that markets reacted, obviously different environment, and I don't like to make the 1970s comparison to the current environment because it's not like that. And we've said to our clients repeatedly in the recent months that the more you know useful uh, comparison is 1949 and not 1979. But nevertheless, Volcker comes in summer of 1979 and everyone was concerned about inflation, similar to today, and he shocks the market um, in much the same way in our last conversation, we talked about how the Powell Fed really shocked people with their actions and, and the way that they've communicated their actions in recent weeks and, and in many ways reduced their credibility. But in the case of Volcker, he came out on a Saturday afternoon and raised prices by 100 basis points. People were a lot hardier back then. Um, so on a Saturday afternoon, just lays it out. And, and not only that, but lays out a different framework for thinking about monetary policy, which many of our listeners will know, and it's, you know, probably too nerdy to get into now. Um, but the important thing was that it was a shock, a very hawkish shock. And the way that markets responded was very similar to what we're kind of seeing today, which is that interest rates initially soared. So the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield when Volcker came in was a little under 10%. Imagine that. Those were the mm -hmm. days, right? And within two months of him shocking the markets, they were over 14%, 14 and a half, I think it was. But then what happened was very, very quickly after that initial shock, the implications became clear and sort of the after effects became clear. And that 10-year yield completely round-tripped and was back below 10% within you know, six weeks after reaching those high levels. So I think that's what you're starting to see here, um, where everyone's so focused on supply and inflation, and then the demand implications of the remedy start to trickle through and, and become clear in markets. And I think that's what we're expecting is a very sharp follow through there with implications for bonds, uh, for oil prices, for industrial metals, um, and those issues, not necessarily stocks, 
because I think in many ways stocks have been getting squeezed because of rising rates, rising inflation, rising bond yields, rising oil. And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad development for them. Yeah, we're going to have um, Marco Papich on the podcast, I think, in the next week or two. He was supposed to come on yesterday, but something came up. Um, but he, he just published a report about Volcker and kind of attacking Volcker. And there were a lot of parts of it, and we'll talk to him about it. But one thing he he brought up that's been in, in my mind and which connects with what you just said was that um, if the Fed does raise, continues to raise rates in the way that it has been, um, that it would probably actually not help inflation that much because part of what's going on here is we have to redo supply chains and there's all this geopolitics that is in the system. And if you have companies that start slashing CapEx because they're afraid to put money at work right now because of higher interest rates, um, you're really just kicking the can down the road and you're going to get that inflation at some point. So in some ways, if you try and, and have an interest rate um, bazooka to take out what's going on right now, you're actually sort of guaranteeing inflation down the road. Do, do you find that argument convincing? Um, I also know that, you know, in, we've talked in the last couple of weeks that there does seem to be this divergence between sort of normal consumer sentiment. Maybe people aren't going buying the washer dryer at Home Depot, but it doesn't look like U.S. companies are actually slashing CapEx right now. It seems like they're sort of looking through it. So I just wonder how you react to that and what you think about inflation in the context of what you just brought up about interest rates. Well, there's a lot of moving parts, um, and it's hard to give a very simple answer. I think Marco is right in some ways. I think that underplays the importance of interest rates on demand. So one of the things that we've talked about um, in our recent webinars for clients, and I think in this context also, is this notion that companies are still investing. Companies are still laying out CapEx. They're still building out you know, warehouse networks and e-commerce capabilities. And a lot of these sort of technological revolutions that are reaching critical mass in the maturity stage are spurring them into investing, even if they're not confident about, you know, the inflationary environment, the demand environment, those sorts of things. So that is inflationary. And I think Marco is right that those things have to happen. Those investments are good for the economy. They're good for society. They are to some extent inflationary. But when you look at what's really driving inflation, and I think this is why being on the ground is so essential because, you know, we're in stores, we're literally watching people buy stuff. And that's invaluable in terms of just getting a feel for things. And there's no question that the fiscal stimulus that's flowed through the economy is, is, has been just mind-bogglingly huge. And it's still flowing through. So one of the, um, one of the people in our uh, network I was speaking with last week, he's an expert in affordable housing development. And he was talking to me, he's here in Massachusetts, and he said, well, we're just looking around for anything we can build because we have so much money that we haven't spent yet from, from the stimulus that it's just sitting there and we need to spend it on something. So we're, we're just you know, doing any projects. Like we don't care what the returns are. We just have to spend the money. God, and that makes me the, want to light myself on fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty depressing if, if, you, if you're a fan of efficiency. Um, but there's so much of that. And, um, and that is interest rate driven. 
you know, we mentioned the Airbnb thing and the wealth effect. That's real. And that's very much driven by interest rates. And of course, the big one, the big, big one is housing. So right now, housing has been red hot and it's still been red hot on pricing. And if you just look at CPI, I mean, housing and healthcare are two enormous components of that. So healthcare is its own weird thing, but housing is the most interest rate sensitive part of the market. And um, there's no question that raising rates is having an impact. I mean, the 30 year mortgage rate is over 6% yeah. right now. And it happened fast rate. too. I mean, it really, it took off in a hurry. Real fast. And you're seeing these stories about people who've been locked into home purchases and all of a sudden the, the whole purchase is getting scuttled because they couldn't secure the financing. The financing got repriced and they couldn't afford it anymore. So they had to back out. And then you have this domino effect where they were going to sell their home and then purchase another home. And then, you know, the, they can't sell it anymore. So then they can't purchase. Um, that's having a, a big impact. And you're already starting to see that happen. Inventories of homes for sale, which were rock bottom, um, just unbelievable lows. There was something like uh, uh, 400,000 homes for sale in the whole country, which is just nuts. Um, that's coming off the lows and it's coming off fast as people unload and as demand falls off because people can't afford. Um, so that's going to have a price impact. The number of multifamily homes that are under construction in the United States is at its highest level since 1973 right now. Multifamily apartments, I mean. And in 1973, that's when the baby boomers were all leaving their parents' homes and getting their first jobs and having to move into cities. So that mm -hmm. gives some perspective about how much supply is coming onto this market. And I can tell you, I don't know what it's like in New Orleans right now. I know in Texas, it's still bananas. But here in you know the Boston area, I've never seen so many multifamily buildings under construction. Every block all around me, I can look out the window right now and see two, you know, 100 unit uh, multifamily uh, apartment buildings that are going to be coming online. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, that was a long winded answer to the to the notion of interest rates and and inflation. But of course, it has an effect. And, and Marco, Marco is also right, because the other issues are pushing in the opposite direction. So I don't think that they're necessarily compressing the kind of corporate capex that, uh, that he's talking about, which is good, but they are damping down a lot of that really wild uh, consumer demand that's been driving prices up. You say tamping down, but in some ways it's doubling down because if we bring this back to energy, I mean, that's the thing. I'm not sure that rising interest rates actually have that much of an effect on energy prices or on food prices. So, I mean, food and energy prices have been going up for a lot of other different reasons that, as far as I can tell, don't have anything to do with the Federal Reserve or central banks. And you were going to get demand destruction at a certain point anyway. So maybe oil was going to go to 130 or 140. I don't know where things were actually going to plateau and sort of fall off to where people we're going to look at those prices and say, oh, I really do have to reconsider. I do think that the interest rate shock um, has people's sentiment changing, and maybe that made them less willing to spend on energy or on food or, or things like that than that they were before. Um, but 
raising interest rates doesn't affect that. And the actual supply situation is not really all that changed. And the other thing I think that has happened here just in the last couple of weeks is that we're starting to realize Russia is not going to play for any kind of diplomatic resolution with the in the Ukraine war anytime soon. They're going to push forward. So the Europeans are really having to say, okay, we need to make sure we have energy for this winter. Um, we need to make sure that we can figure out what food prices are going to look like for this winter. So, I mean, just this week, you have Austria, Germany, and the Netherlands all come out and say, we're going to go, we're going to start purchasing and using coal again for power. The the German official who announced this is the economy ministers from the Green Party. You've got a Green Party official coming out and saying, we're going to need more coal. And the reason I just bring that up is because since the beginning of the year, I've been talking about how oil and natural gas, they get all the headlines. But coal is the one where a lot of countries, especially in Asia, still use coal um, as a primary source of electricity production, power production. We had some brownouts in India and China last year because people were switching to coal a little bit. And that's in the context of no Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, and I'm a little nervous what happens as we get towards the end of the year here, because if the richer Europeans are going to get in on the coal market and they're going to start buying up supplies, then prices are going to go up. Then Asian countries are looking where, then it's more pressure on LNG. You sort of get this spinning top um, to where I, I maybe you'll get this plateau and pullback from a consumer uh, standpoint. But at some point, probably the energy situation is going to squeeze again. And that's not even talking about the shutdown at Freeport. That's assuming there are no hurricanes that knock off U.S. production or no other black swans or, or, or weather events that we're not thinking about. So where I'm sitting, I'm, it, it, it's almost it, it's, it's like I'm watching an, an accident in slow motion. Like I'm watching the energy pull back and I understand why it is because there's less demand. But it's like all those things that drove energy up in the first place are still there and still lurking. And as soon as demand kicks back on because China's rolling again or because the Fed realizes it hiked too fast, I don't know. It seems like if you, if you get even a, a subtle change in sentiment that's more positive, we're going to be back in high energy price land. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, the underlying longer term story on energy is bullish. There's no question about that. I think the volatility of of the road from here to there is going to be much higher than people expect and much higher than we're used to. Because um, again, it's those second derivative little changes. Look at look at 2008, look at mid 2008, how much oil, for example, just absolutely soared on relatively small changes in supply and demand, and then how yep. it absolutely collapsed in the other direction on relatively small changes. And that's going to be the norm. You know, using that 1948 comparison again, the, the word of the day was volatility, enormous volatility. And it wasn't just in the US, that was a global thing. Japan had hyperinflation in 1948, runaway hyperinflation. People were afraid of having enough to eat. And, and, you know, look how quickly that, that turned around. Um, I think that's the environment that we're, that we're living through. So being tactical and sort of fading the moves, I think, is generally the approach you want to take rather than, I mean, I think you have to have these long-term theses, these long-term fundamental views, which we do, but then from a tactical standpoint, don't you know, if the price goes up 30%, don't start getting all, oh, you know, here's the super cycle, because it's <laughs> inevitably going to smack you in the face. And then when it drops, I mean, I, I would not be surprised, as we were talking about, you know, uh, before, 
if crude oil went back to $75 before it goes to $150, um, you know, and similar with, with coal and similar energy commodities. Um, cause that's how quickly things are changing and, and demand and supply are responding or lack of supply, I should say. Yeah. Anything else to say on energy before we turn to Hong Kong or did we hit it all? I think we hit it all. I'd be curious to know if you have any strictly geopolitical thoughts about Nord Stream and Russia and Germany's announcement of their plan today. But if there's nothing very interesting beyond the headlines, we can go on to Hong Kong. Um, I, I don't have a ton to say there, just to say that, um, I mean, I, Nord Stream 2 is done. I don't think that's ever going to happen again. And I, I think one thing the Russians have underestimated is that they still think the Europeans are going to come around uh, and start importing Russian natural gas and Russian oil again at scale and that they just need to put more pressure on Europe to do so. Um, I just wrote about this in the sit rep for this week. The, the really disturbing thing Russia's been doing this week is all the news about Kaliningrad, uh, which scares me way more than anything else that has happened in the Russia-Ukraine war from a sort of global stability perspective, because now we're talking about Russia fooling around with NATO states and you know, real military threats that all sides have sort of prepared for. I think the Russians are trying to create that pressure so that the European Union just comes back and cries uncle and says, all right, we're just going to have to deal with the Russians for the next couple of years. I think the Russians are wrong about that. I think the Europeans are going to transition away from Russian oil and natural gas as quickly as they can. Some countries are going to do it faster than others. I've been immensely impressed with the Italians. Um, they, we, we don't normally think of the Italians as great strategic thinkers, but they've doubled their imports from Algeria. They're running around Africa, sourcing all sorts of new deals. They're holding off on declaring an energy emergency because they've been able to source other energy. Um, I was reading about Poland just this morning. You know, we talk about Nord Stream 2. They've been building a Baltic Sea pipeline that's supposed to connect them to Norway for the last couple of years, and it's going to come online in October. That's probably one of the reasons the Russians decided to play around with Poland, because they know that Poland doesn't need Russia in the long term. Poland's actually prepared for some of the things that are happening. So the, the real question is Germany. And I think Germany is starting to wake up to the fact that it's going to have to make some changes, but it's not advanced enough yet. When, when the German economy minister starts talking about more than coal and starts talking about what, what they need to do to extend the life of nuclear plants and, and build new nuclear plants, then I'll know that there's been that paradigm shift in Germany yet. So I think we're heading in that direction. I, I don't think we're there yet. In the meantime, you know, Russia's trying to put pressure on those European countries to import more while the Europeans are running around trying to find energy wherever they can elsewhere in the world. And I guess that's just the last thing I would say about that. The Europeans are very wealthy and they're used to a certain standard of life. That doesn't necessarily mean they're weak and that they're going to compromise with Russia. What it does mean is that if you've got European nations that are competing in global energy markets now for things that they weren't competing for before, those prices are going to go up and the Europeans are going to be able to buy before some of the other countries that depend on these things. So when you look around the world and you see Pakistan having fuel crises or the, the small country of the week this week for me that's having fuel sh shortages was Laos. Laos. If, if you look around the world and you see these little pressure points, it's because you're getting the third and fourth derivatives where, okay, you've got more Europeans running around in the market. They're going to buy. They're going to take what the, the supplies that somebody else was buying. The, the Europeans are probably going to be able to get their hands on the energy. But what about all these other countries that maybe can't sort of afford the same prices? So that's trying to figure out how, those, how all those things are linking together from um, what's happening in Eastern Europe to me is is sort of the big geopolitical puzzle piece of all this. 
And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on more of the medium term outlook, because as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, if you were to go back to 2006, 2007, at that point, remember the movie Syriana that came out? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah, it was really, it was, it looked great. It was kind of a crap movie. (laughs) Um, But it was all about how, you know, we're, it was a Hollywood film about how we're in hawk to Middle Eastern oil and, you know, it corrupts us morally and et cetera. And then within a few years, U.S. oil production had exploded with the Permian Basin and, and all of that that no one anticipated. And I just wonder, you know, it's, it's really striking. My, my wife's family's from the south of France, as you know, and they're, you know, very environmentally oriented people and they're Mélenchon voters and, you know, that's a big thing for them. And right now they're terrified of what's happening with Russia. And uh, Julia tells me, oh, I talked to my mom. She's going on about, you know, Russia again. And, you know, really they're scared and what's going on with the energy. And and I just find that very striking um, how, you know, you, you mentioned when you see the German policymakers pushing for nuclear restarts, that'll be the real catalyst. But how much of a push does that take if you're really, truly threatened um, and how quickly can we see those supply chains shift and, and, you know, how long before the U.S. institutes a strategic plan to boost natural gas production 50% in two years or, um, you know. A strategic plan out of the U.S.? Or, or do you feel okay? Or, or? We used to do stuff like that, didn't we? <laughs> sort of. I mean, one of our great strengths and weaknesses is that we've always been kind of, we sort of let the markets do what they're going to do uh, for better and for worse. Um, from Europe, I mean, I'm, I'm only, I can only guess, but I mean, it seems like they think they can get most of the way there with natural gas by the end of the year. Some countries can't. If you're Hungary or Slovakia or stuff like that, they're going to carve things out for those different countries. Um, but it's not impossible for Europe to figure this out on a two to three year time horizon. But to your point, there's at least one winter, maybe two winters before we get to that time horizon where you can equalize things. Um, so, yeah, and, and that's that's why I think this this medium term cycle for energy, it's going to have to be inflationary because there's just not enough supply out there for the level of the the demand that we're projecting i have been saying though by the end of this decade we should be talking about energy the same way we were in sort of the early 2010s we should be seeing a real drop in energy prices because there's going to be a lot of investment in traditional hydrocarbons i think because of what's happening right now um the renewables are scaling, they're not yet eating into normal energy demand, but five, seven years from now, I think renewables will probably cover a lot of growth in energy demand in the world and they'll start eating into the energy um, demand that usually goes for hydrocarbons. So if we continue on this path, by the end of the decade, you're probably looking at the deflationary tail of, of the energy cycle. But right now, here today, in these next two or three years, I mean, supply doesn't look good and supply doesn't look good not assuming anything crazy happens. So like I said, I mean, all it takes is one Hurricane Harvey to set the U.S. off in a very different direction. And suddenly we're looking at a very different kind of global market. Um, You know, the flip side of that is 
what if something what, what if libya has some kind of turnaround and their 1.3 million barrels come back on the market what if the us and venezuela figure out how to deal with each other and you can get venezuela back on um, i saw brazil uh, imported its first cargo from from for for guianese oil guiana is that the way guianese i think that's how you pronounce that word um that, I mean, ExxonMobil has been d- describing the, the oil that they found in Guyana as like a fairy tale size discovery. So like th- there are, there is supply out there in certain, in certain areas. And like I said, by, I think longer term, it's, it's going to be okay. But that short, that short time horizon, there's not a lot we can say in the next six to 12 months that should make you feel good. Hong Kong, <laughs> Hong Kong. All right. Energy, energy to Hong Kong. Um, I didn't know anything about the Hong Kong dollar going into this week. You were actually the one that, that flagged it to me. What did you see that made you kind of that made your eyebrows stand up uh, with the Hong Kong dollar? Well, the thing that I found very striking is so the Hong Kong dollar, for those who don't know, is pegged to the U.S. dollar at seven point seven five Hong Kong dollars per U.S. dollar, with a, a moderate band. And uh, that peg has been in place for a very long time. You can talk about the history around that because I think it's a really interesting story, which I didn't really know until you told me. Um, but the thing that's happening that's very interesting is, you know, one of the themes that we've talked about because we released the geopolitics and investing paper, and we talked about this notion of during a period of globalization, you get synchronized policy, synchronized macro cycles across different regions. And now that's completely broken down. Um, You have China that has been mired in a deep recession um, and is trying to stimulate its way out of that recession. You have the US that has been on fire and is starting to roll over into a recession only now. And everyone's wondering how bad is it going to be? And then Europe is somewhere in between. So they've just kind of narrowly avoided recession. you know, they're, they're the Goldilocks in this scenario between the two extremes. And that was never the case before. Um, the prior, you know, multiple cycles, uh, you had seen fairly synchronized global uh, macro and business cycles. So the, as with that as the background, you know, you're starting to see really interesting dynamics play out. And one of the, one of the manifestations of that we saw Uh, this week or that we are talking about internally uh, with the CI team is in Hong Kong. So because the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the U.S. dollar, um, for those who don't know, there's something called the impossible trinity, which is essentially a way of saying that you can have independent monetary policy, you can have a free, uh, you can have a, a pegged currency, or you can have a, a, a closed, I'm sorry, an open capital account, but you cannot have all three of those things. So in the case of Hong Kong, they have a pegged currency. They have an open capital account, of course, because it's the conduit to China, or historically it has been. But they do not have an independent monetary policy because in order to maintain the peg, they have to follow what the Fed does. So if the interest rate differential in Hong Kong and the U.S. becomes super wide, you're going to struggle to maintain the peg because speculators are going to uh, sell Hong Kong dollars 
and buy US dollars and capture that interest rate spread. So this is becoming more of an issue because as I said, China has been mired in a recession. So China is cutting interest rates aggressively. And if you look at three month uh, interest rates in Shanghai, they're going down. Um, whereas interest rates in Hong Kong are totally spiking, like going vertical in the last few weeks. And that's creating this strain on the system where the Hong Kong Monetary Authority is having to intervene more directly um, to defend the peg and, and maintain, you know, uh, things in, in the face of that difference. And the reason why it's important is because Hong Kong needs Chinese monetary policy because Hong Kong is part of China, essentially, and its conditions are Chinese conditions. It needs stimulus right now. It doesn't need to be uh, throttled with high monetary policy. So these legacies of the old order are still around. And as things break apart geopolitically, um, it's, it's creating interesting strains and it's not clear how they play out, but things are going to yeah. have to change there. Before I respond to that, I, I just want to, for the, for the listeners and, and even for myself too, I think it's pretty clear what a pegged currency is. Hong Kong dollars equal to this much, this many US dollars, and that's what you keep it at. You, you don't want it to move all around. I think it's also pretty clear what um, independence and monetary policy means. But if we're just defining it really simply, it means you get to raise interest rates when you want. So the Federal Reserve raises interest rates when it wants, not because anybody else did it. Hong Kong doesn't get to do that. They have to raise interest rates because the Fed is doing it, not because Hong Kong gets to do it itself. The word capital account has always been a little more confusing and amorphous for me. So I'm going to ask you to just help the listeners and apologies for those of you who know what this is. But can you describe to the listeners, what does it mean to have an open capital account? I think that's the part of the the, the the trinity or the trilemma or whatever they call it that I often glaze over because I can't define it quite as neatly as I can those other two boxes. Oh, sure. Um, so when you talk about the balance of payments, which is essentially how is the money flowing between different countries, there's two elements of the balance of payments. There's the current account, which is what you read about more often. So if you go in The Economist magazine, on the last page, they have the big table with all of the numbers and the economic data. They'll show you what the current account surplus or deficit is for each country. So for a long time, there was the narrative about, oh, the US has this huge current account deficit. So we're spending more than we sell to the rest of the world. And we're so fat and, and uh, you know, this is us over consuming and look at our big houses and that yeah. old narrative, right? Um, so the current account is like your trade, effectively your trade deficit or your trade surplus. There's other things in there, but they're less important. So that's one half. But then the mirror image of that is your capital account. Um, capital account is basically where are the savings flowing to? So um, if you're running a, uh, a, a trade, so the United States, for example, we're running a trade deficit, a huge trade deficit, especially right now. But the necessary corollary to that is we're running a huge capital surplus, which means capital from other parts of the world is flowing into the US like a fire hose. And those things must balance. They, they're, they're, 
uh, accounting identities that must be equal in the end, right? So um, the U.S. is like that because we have famously open capital markets. It's very easy to invest in the U.S. You can go buy treasury bonds anywhere in the world. Um, and that's, you know, having an open capital account. If your capital account is closed, you're much more constrained in what you can do um, because it means that you can't just go, like, for example, you can't go to North Korea and buy, you know, uh, uh, Kim Jong-un uh, uh, faced sovereign debt. Um, that's just not an option. They don't have an open capital account. And, you know, there's various shades of that. But that's the general idea is if you want money flowing in and out of your country freely, that's having an open capital account and vice versa. Does that make sense? No, that's perfect. Why would you want a closed capital account? Well, um, <laughs> that's a long conversation <laughs> and, and, and a real... And a real tricky one, um, mostly because you don't want your own capital going away, not because you don't want capital coming in. So we've talked about this in the case of Turkey. Turkey is an ex interesting example because they're desperate to keep capital in the country. They do not want Turkish capital flowing out, people you know, buying dollars and speculating and, and trying to have capital flight. Um, so that's the biggest reason. Um, there's also national security and sovereignty reasons that come into it in certain cases. So like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. You know, Nazi Germany is a famous case of a place where the capital count was just completely shut down. So not, uh, Weimar Germany was had a very open capital account. U.S. investors famously accumulated tons of German bonds in the 1920s and it financed municipal swimming pools and all this stuff that turned out to be a disaster. And then um, when the Nazis came into power, they closed down the capital account uh, and very, very tightly controlled any foreign currency earnings or, or foreign currency flows that were coming in because they wanted to take all of that and put it into arms and tanks and planes. Mm -hmm. So there's political reasons but mostly it's to keep your own people from getting the money out. Gotcha. Um, well, that's a really great segue into why the Hong Kong dollar and the U.S. dollar is pegged because um, they've been pegged since 1983. And the only reason they were pegged was because the British were trying to negotiate a renewal of their lease over Hong Kong. And we can talk about that if you want to. There's a bunch of interesting history there as well. Um, and when they started negotiating in 1983, the Chinese basically said, uh, no, we're, we're not renewing the lease. We're powerful enough. We're going to take Hong Kong back for ourselves. Our century and a half of humiliation is over. Thank you. And don't let the door hit you on the way out. Um, eventually, they come to an agreement and one country, two systems, and everything gets smoothed over. But that moment of tension between Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping, uh, markets reacted really negatively to that. And the Hong Kong dollar just starts plummeting, almost loses half of its value. And the way that Hong Kong uh, stopped the bleeding was they said, okay, we're going to peg this to the US dollar to improve investor sentiment. So in some, in some sense, they sacrificed um, 
that independence or that self-sufficiency because if they had kept it going, there was no, it wasn't clear how far the Hong Kong dollar was going to go because nobody had confidence because they thought, oh my God, China's just going to kind of take this over. The flip side of this is that you know, the net, literally the next year is when China's reform and opening up really kicks into gear because Deng Xiaoping comes out and says, okay, there's now going to be 14 special economic zones in China. And all of you, please come and build factories and invest. And as long as you're in these special economic zones, you, you don't have to worry about the rest. You know, you're not going to be in communist China. You know, we, we want the money flowing in from that point of view. We just want to be able to control it in these specific zones. And you're off to the races and you get this symbiotic relationship where Hong Kong becomes the conduit into mainland China. A lot of Hong Kong's manufacturing expertise and things like that goes to China. Hong Kong becomes this financial center. It also becomes the place where countries like the US and um, you know, European countries feel like they can invest in Hong Kong and there's some reliability or stability there and it's access to the Chinese market. And I've been going back and forth on this because on the one hand, if we're in a multipolar geopolitical environment, um, you can see how that geopolitical relationship doesn't work anymore because China is going to want to be able to control Hong Kong. China has been amassing more control over Hong Kong in recent years and curtailing its political independence. There's no reason that China should be stuck with one of its most important cities having a U.S. dollar peg. Um, you probably want that for yourself or you want to you have more Chinese sovereignty over that issue. At the same time, though, if we're moving towards a multipolar world, it's actually probably going to be important to have those sorts of conduits where different countries can have access to another country without actually being in the country. The whole point of having an entrepot like Hong Kong is because you don't feel safe in the actual country. There are economic reasons to be in that country, but, but for political reasons, you can't actually be in that country. So you want these kind of um, kind of go-betweens and in-betweens and things like that. And I, I think the, the only last thing I would say is that um, – I don't think the Chinese are interested in taking Hong Kong from this perspective right now. I don't think they want to break the peg right now because, to your point, they want money in. China says, please bring the fire hose over to China. We want all that foreign capital in. That's the one area where they're probably not going to mess around with things. But like with Taiwan, eventually they probably want to control that and they want to be talking about the renminbi in Hong Kong. Um, not the Hong Kong dollar. That seems like it's going to be a ways off, but I think that's why people start sniffing around the edges of this because they see this divergence between Hong Kong policy and China policy and they think, oh, the Hong Kong dollar peg is going to break. Um, and I think that's a little too simplistic, but you can see those those geopolitical forces changing and conflicting with each other underneath the surface. There's also many variations in between that you can do. I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, you don't necessarily need to break the peg. You can introduce a secondary exchange rate or you introduce the renminbi for certain types of transactions or for certain parts of the economy and not others. Um, that's fairly common where you have you know dual exchange rates or exchange rates with three different um, tracks. Uh, you, you might see something like that. But I'm curious to know, Jacob, what you think about Hong Kong just as an entity, because it does seem that a lot of countries, especially China, who are, you know, having very kind of sovereign policies in terms of um, self-sufficiency and technology standards and rule of law, obviously, which is viewed as very different, that it's in their interest to have a Hong Kong uh, to be like, 
almost like, uh, you know, when you're going into uh, a clean room and they have the little room in between where you go in and you can hose off um, something like that. But is that viable given that the facts on the ground are so well known, given what they've done in Hong Kong in recent years? Like, is Hong Kong viewed as sufficiently different or safe from Chinese jurisdiction or Chinese laws in the same way that it was where it's even effective anymore? I think it was until 2020. And then China pushed through that national security um, reform, if we're going to use the euphemism. And it was no longer considered that way. And you know that because the United States under President Donald Trump then got rid of all the exclusions and exemptions that were there for Hong Kong. Until 2020, the United States legally treated Hong Kong like a different entity than it did mainland China. It doesn't anymore. The other part of your question, though, is, you know, it's actually not it, it was never good for China to have a Hong Kong in some sense. We have to understand that like Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan, um, these are not places that were part of Chinese civilization going back all the way to the Han dynasties or the thousands of years ago when people talk about the long stretch of Chinese history. The reason Hong Kong exists is because the British were trying to sell opium into China in the early 1800s. The Chinese said, we don't want your opium here. They confiscated a lot of the opium. They were arresting British trade tradesmen who wouldn't sign guarantees that they weren't going to trade opium there. And so what the British traders did was first they went to Macau and then they went to Hong Kong, which was basically a deserted rock filled island. Um, and that was their main place where they started up their opium trade into China. And then you get the opium wars and Britain has this position there in Hong Kong and it uses it as its own sort of personal foray into China while having sovereign territory that belongs to it. It, it leased it, of course, but you know, it was basically British territory, all of which is to say that, um, having that kind of foreign um, capital or foreign influence in a place like Hong Kong, it was never good for China. China was able to make it work for itself in the 1980s and 1990s as a useful conduit. But it, it would be like saying, um, would it be good for um, the United States if China controlled the city of Miami or, or that somebody else controlled the city of Miami? Well, no, in a perfect world, the United States would like sovereignty over all of its cities. China's the same way. It would like sovereignty over all of its cities. If somebody, they want people to bring their capital to China, but why not? You should be able to go to any Chinese city and trust the law there. It, Hong Kong shouldn't have a special status. So um, I think that Hong, uh, Hong Kong was useful to the Chinese in their reform and opening up phase. But if China's going to be the power that it wants to be, uh, you can't have these sort of exceptions on the periphery because you can just build special economic zones or you can have certain rules within the Chinese system that do that and not be forced to inherit these really colonial leftovers that force, in this case, Hong Kong into monetary policy that doesn't make any sense for Hong Kong or from China's perspective that doesn't make sense. So um, for the record, I'm not expressing my political view there. I'm trying to put myself in the in the in the head of a Chinese decision maker. But I think that's what they would think. I think they would say, look, we'll use Hong Kong to our advantage, but it's not like it pays for us to have this be anything but a Chinese city. Eventually, we want this to be a Chinese city and we want the rest of the world. It doesn't matter whether it's Hong Kong or Shanghai or Beijing. We want the world's money in China and we want them to trust China enough that they'll invest in China. And that's a lot of what the regulatory reforms that China's doing right now are supposed to impose. So what do you think is the outlook for Hong Kong longer term? Is it going to fade into obscurity? 
Yeah, I look, I, I hate saying this and people who love Hong Kong and I get why people love Hong Kong. It's been, I don't know, 10 or 15 years since I was there and that wasn't even its heyday. I mean, like Hong Kong was a really cool place. Um, there's a reason like every single futurist dystopian novel or movie features some kind of place that looks basically like Hong Kong. It's like it was a place of imagination and East meets West and all sorts of things. But I think that period is mostly over. I mean, like China's taking back Hong Kong. It started with the national security law. It's still a financial center and there's still a lot of leftover things and a lot of interesting things. But the world is changing and Hong Kong was always going to eventually revert back to China. And it is. Um but, you know, I, I'm sort of reminded, I, I lived in Austin for over 10 years. And I remember when I got to Austin, it was kind of crunchy. And, you know, they were on East 6th, you didn't have to pay to park. Actually, you sort of had to watch your back when you were walking down East 6th to go to the cool hipster bars and stuff like that. And now it's been overrun by a bunch of tech bros and um, everything is more expensive. And you don't have to watch your back on East 6th Street anymore, except from somebody that's going to tow your car because you didn't pay the exorbitant parking fees and things like that. I'm not going to sit here and lament the loss of Austin. Like Austin changed. It became a different kind of city. That's what growth is. Hong Kong is going to become a different type of city. It is not going to be that cool entrepot place where East meets West and it's both things at the same time. It's going to become increasingly more Chinese. Um, for better and for worse. So I think that's its its future kind of going forward. Anyone who's listening to this and becoming interested in Hong Kong, just a plug, there's a wonderful photographer who is, is quite famous. I'm sure most people will know him uh, named Michael Wolf, who has, do you, do you know Michael Wolf, Jacob? Yeah, a little bit, not, not enough. Uh, he, 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 he has, it's worth looking up. He has some wonderful um, uh, photography of Hong Kong where he essentially turns, turns the uh, skyscrapers into essentially, you know, uh, patterns. I can't describe it well, but it's really, really great stuff. And he died in 2020. And I remember thinking at the time, this was as a lot of the changes that you just referred to were taking place that it's it's funny you see these these little signs of uh, things that are landmarks for change, and I think that was a, a landmark because he was very much a chronicler of old Hong Kong and that sort of entrepot um, mentality and, and legacy. So it's worth checking out for those yeah. who are interested in photography and visual arts. For sure. The other funny thing is like probably if China grows the way that it wants to grow, you're probably going to see China doing – this to other places in the world because China's going to want bases around the world or places in the world where it can exert um, its own influence or economic center of gravity, whether it's in Africa or Southeast Asia or even in Latin America. Um, so maybe we'll get another version of Hong Kong somewhere else in the world. There will always be a need, I think, for these types of places. It's just that if China's going to get stronger, Hong Kong is going to be part of China itself. The place where those in-between zones are going to be is probably going to change. It's why I think Singapore is really the one um, that is probably going to take over a lot of that feeling from Hong Kong because it really is in between. It isn't beholden to anyone. It, it can have that sort of independence um, from all different sides and isn't seen as a threat maybe to any any single power there. Um, so, I think that's really intriguing what you just say. What you just said, how plausibly would that play out? Like how does a new Hong Kong emerge? Elaborate on that. Well, I just came up with that on the fly. So uh, let's let's see if I can develop it a little bit. No, I mean, imagine that um, 
I don't know, this is probably going to be a ludicrous example, but imagine that China, you know, needs access to um, South Africa or something like that, or let's call it Mozambique, and they want access to all the energy there and the food there, and they're going to make that a, also a major export market for them. And they don't need to be there proper, but they want to be in an island nearby. Maybe they take over one little island or they lease it from that country, and that becomes part of China, and there's Chinese law there, or it's some in between zone. And then you get this, you know, sort of area that's 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 going to be both of them. I mean, it, it's that sort of it would be that sort of thing. Like Hong Kong existed because you had a declining power and then you had rising powers that wanted access to that market. And those rising powers didn't want to be in the declining power because it was too unstable or it wasn't tenable. So they just, you know, picked an outpost nearby and then and basically used it as their own territory. I think you can see that happening. It's not just China. I'm sure India will have things like that. Um, the UAE is talking about building a base in Sudan this week. I mean, like you can see those, uh, we were just talking about Turkey. Turkey's building bases all over the Horn of Africa. It's involved in Libya and things like that. Um, there are all sorts of little in-between places like that where you'll see countries, I think, try and build their own, um, build their influence. Will it be like Hong Kong where you really do get basically a British system on an island halfway across the world? I don't know. That was a pretty unique set of circumstances. But those types of things, yeah, I think they're, you're probably going to get a new cycle of those sorts of things. And it's not just going to be the U.S. It's going to be different countries doing it in different parts of the world. Kind of, kind of like charter cities in some ways. A little bit. I, you know, with all, with all my free time, I, I keep on saying I'm going to write a book about the, the, the rise of the city state in the, in the 21st century. So it, at some point I'll do that. But I mean, th that's another example. I mean, like when you think about the great city states of, of the world, it, it usually happens at these multipolar moments where you need these global trade outposts. It's why it's one of the reasons we're bullish on Turkey, because this is what Istanbul usually functions as. Um, so ironically, like in these phases where you have these different systems and these different political rivalries, you need those places that are just about commerce where people can actually come together and rub shoulders against each other. So, hmm. well, well, on that note, anything else before we say goodbye to the listeners, Rob? I don't think so. Another normal week in the world's in the markets. <laughs> yeah, normal is relative. Um, as always, folks, you can write to us. I'm Jacob at Cognitive.Investments. Uh, you can write to me about how I'm wrong about the Hong Kong dollar or all my crazy ideas on this podcast. I, I always sound like I have strongly held opinions. I'm usually just floating things for the first time on this podcast. So I actually really appreciate it when people email me and tell me what an idiot I am. So feel free to do that. Uh, and Rob is Rob at Cognitive.Investments. And we will see you uh, next week. Okay. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at Cognitive.Investments. That's Cognitive.Investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at Jacob at Cognitive.Investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.